All right, let's do this. You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. So this is Why We Do What We Do. Your favorite consumable psychology podcast. Woot. So Shane, how would you know if uh, if you're like, let's say your hands were hurting you for some reason, how would you know why your hands hurt? Um, if you like, let's just say you were trying to do something that required some amount of physical dexterity, you didn't actually suffer a blatant injury or anything, but you were trying to type or, or you were trying to like, maybe do needlepoint, I don't know. And you discover that your whenever you try and do these things, your hands are hurting, even though you hadn't injured your hands. How might you go about figuring out why your hands were bothering you? So funny enough, I have a story specific to that. So I, uh, when I was younger, I would swing a baseball bat and my hand would hurt every time I would swing the bat. And I ended up going to an orthopedic doctor to get my hand diagnosed because I had broken a bone in my hand and I had no idea. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I had to go to a doctor to actually go get that checked out. And it, there was like all sorts of testing and stuff they did for it. Excellent. So that perfectly answers the question. <laughs> did they do an x-ray? They did an x-ray. Okay. And they found that I had a boxer's fracture. Okay. From all yeah. your boxing? From all my boxing, which I yeah. have never done in my life. Because you, you were training to be the next Rocky? Yeah. Yeah. I've never understood that sport, but... Instead of, <laughs> instead of Creed, it was going to be Spiker. Yeah, which which I just it doesn't flow as well in the boxing realm, I guess. Yeah, it wouldn't also call back to the other films, so yeah, not, not quite. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, so you got an X-ray. They did some other exams, probably, and and then they looked at you and said that, "Hey, dude, you have a problem with your hand." Um, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking of idiocracy. It's like, dude, <laughs> your stuff's like messed up. <laughs> that's that's kind of how the doctor said said yeah. it. Your stuff's like messed up. But we had to mess it up more to fix it. There you go. And so they they specifically ran some tests, and that's how they discovered that you had this boxer's fracture. All Mm -hmm. right. Now, how would you know if you had a mental health illness such as generalized anxiety disorder? Well, I would imagine that it would you would probably go through some kind of testing, some kind of something. Right? There's got to be there's got to be something out there to help kind of discover or even standardize those types of things. Right. Yeah. And, but they can't do an x-ray, you know, they couldn't do even necessarily an fMRI to figure out if you had generalized anxiety disorder. So instead they got to look at some other type of test. They're going to try and figure out how to determine whether or not this is something that is there for you. And that kind of raises the question, well, what are they looking for? And how do they know that that's the thing that they should be looking for? And what does it look like to have generalized anxiety disorder such that you can specifically and definitively say, yep, that person definitely has generalized anxiety disorder or major depression or something else, you know, any one of these, uh, these diagnoses. So it becomes a lot more difficult when you don't necessarily have a clear biological sign like a fractured hand. There's no fractured hand for the generalized anxiety disorder that, that you can do that sort of test. You have to do some other type of diagnostic test, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's nothing as, quite as observable, I would say, like as far as like something like a broken hand or a shattered bone or, or like a soft tissue growth that you can find in like the medical field. For many of them, yeah. And I mean, obviously, yeah. there's going to be several diseases that exist that still have unknown etiologies and unknown um, pathologies and whatnot, where 
we still don't know that much about them. But otherwise, that yeah, we can look at the symptom and that usually has a pretty direct type of cause. And even if there are multiple symptoms that overlap with different uh, etiologies, uh, there are ways to test that out and find out what that is because it's going to be usually pretty clear that this was a bacterial infection or a viral infection or an injury of some kind, right? Right, yeah. All right, so that means that today we're obviously talking about how one goes about diagnosing mental health disorders and I specifically phrased it this way and didn't just talk about something like the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the United States version of this process, or the DSM as it's called, but wanted to describe how this is done, generally speaking, and also bring into light a lot of the different systems that exist across other cultures and countries and places in the world. And so I'm going to try and answer a little bit of the question of what is this diagnostic system thing and where does it exist? How is it different in the places that it exists differently than it does here? Why is it different? Um, how the those diagnoses come to exist and some fun little statistics and whatnot. Yeah, and I think uh, as we start to unpack some of this stuff, it's really important to recognize that um, this is a fairly complex system that we're trying to give an overview of, and we're really just kind of scratching the surface of it um, and giving you some detail on like what exists and kind of what it looks like, but um, also recognizing that it's a fairly complex system with a lot of moving parts. Yeah, that's a great point, is that I wanted to... It'd be, it'd be awesome to be able to go in and describe every little a aspect of this thing in great detail and cover all of the different elements and the history of the development and all of that sort of thing. And I think down the road, we can certain, certainly tackle things like that. We can even ta tackle like the different revised editions of the DSM or the different revised editions of the ICD that we'll discover later and what those have meant and why they, why they happened the way they did and the major changes that took place in those revisions when they occurred. But that just was so far beyond the scope of this because we have never even talked about how diagnosing works in the first place. So yeah, just as you said that this one's just going to have to be a very general overview. We're going to touch on a lot of different areas inside of the diagnostic system, but not really go super into depth into any of them. So yep, I think it's a good place to start. <laughs> exactly. Um, as my boss likes to say, a mile wide and an inch deep. There you go. I like that. Perfect. You can do that. So we're going to get there. So let's get started on this then. So so let's kind of dig into the background of this a little bit. Okay. So some other things that this has been called or other ways to just think about the system is psychiatric nosology. And nosology is just the branch of medical science concerned with classifying diseases. And so this would just be applying that framework to psychiatric or mental disorders. And another name for this also is psychiatric taxonomy. And again, taxonomy is just a word that means generally a system of classifying things in some way. I believe that Stephen Jay Gould referred to this as uh, splitting and that there are people who he called extreme splitters, which are people who would break down te uh, taxonomies basically as far as they could possibly make them go until essentially you got to a category for every individual example of a thing. So every category had an N of one. That's not to say that's actually how that worked in practice, but that, that's how it could work if you were to continue to split every single difference that could be categorized that way. Now, this is, of course, not to be confused with taxidermy, if that's what you've heard, which has to do with the stuffing of sawdust and animals. Not that any of you actually thought that, but just <laughs> so we're clear. Just so we're clear, we're not talking about stuffing animals. Exactly. <laughs> we're talking about psychiatric challenges. So um, what's really cool about this, and, and I think that people, when you start talking about psychology, we 
recognize that it's a fairly new field of practice. It's a fairly yeah. new field of science. However, it's got its roots in in some long lasting philosophy, right? So it it's it it goes quite it goes quite a ways back. Yeah, and as far as I could tell, the furthest back that I found evidence of was that the Greeks had are often credited with having developed the first system of classifying mental health disorders. Now, of course, so many things have been lost to history over time that it's it's not only possible, but even likely that there have been other systems of diagnosis for mental health problems that have existed for much longer than what the Greeks did, but they would have either been destroyed or for some other reason lost to time. So that's at least as far as the records go that we have that we can say the Greeks may have been the ones who developed the classification system to begin with. Yeah. So over the last few decades, what has essentially happened is we've kind of shaped it up into into a more fine-toothed way of, of diagnosing. And we're continuing to get better with it. But at the end of the day, um, it's still far from perfect and it's still going to change and evolve over time. Sure. Now, I, I did find one source that sort of went through when a diagnostician or some kind of doctor is going to be trying to diagnose a mental health disorder, the kind of steps that they're going to go through to make that diagnosis. So uh, what are the three steps here, Shane? All right. So the first one is going to be to gather information. And this is um, a fairly innocuous process. You're just asking some questions, getting some idea of the context in which the problem is occurring and being able to kind of understand uh, to what degree the, the challenges the person is facing, like to what degree they're an actual problem. So, so a lot of what they, what they do in that information gathering piece. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is sort of part of the assessment phase and that, that's going to include also, as you mentioned, interviewing the individual, but they can also interview family members or other relevant people who might be able to provide a little bit more context for the individual. Yeah. As you start kind of gathering information or as, as they start gathering information, one thing that they start doing in that process is the second step, which is to narrow down their options and rule out unlikely options. So a lot of the questions that they ask will be clarifying questions to kind of, you know, chop away some of the diagnostic criteria and um, be able to say, hey, this is definitely not this disorder. It might be more likely a personality disorder or a mood disorder. Uh, it may not necessarily be something along the other lines that that may be a problem for that person. They're going to ask, are you crazy? And then you <laughs> say either yes or no. <laughs> we say no. <laughs> and then the third one is going to be that they form a diagnostic impression. And so they start using those diagnostic terms to generate a general impression or description of what's going on. So they get this really kind of, even at that stage, they get a pretty broad understanding of what might be occurring um, with that person. This is also the step at which they're going to start to look at assigning a particular label for what they might have observed throughout that process of narrowing things down and say, this looks like this is the diagnosis that's most relevant for you. And they're also going to specifically use language around the that diagnosis to describe what they were finding in that assessment piece. And I just like the, uh, the way that that's phrased to highlights the fact that when one is making a diagnosis, they are more or less labeling the symptoms that they found or that they seem to have observed or that have been reported to them in a way that fits inside of a category that was pre-designed to describe a set of common symptoms that other people experience. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say there? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially what the diagnosis does is it gives you um, kind of a general picture of what that person might be experiencing under under that umbrella. You know, like when we talk about generalized anxiety disorder, most people that have that diagnosis, if it's diagnosed accurately, will share similar symptoms. They may not be exactly the same, but it's close enough that you could probably categorize it under that particular taxonomy. 
And another very common thing to have happen is not only will they share symptoms, but they also might have multiple diagnoses. It's actually very common to have two or more simultaneous diagnoses and often when those and often the same ones will hang together. So you'll often see something like um, ADHD and other learning disabilities like dyslexia or something um, might have a comorbidity rate that's fairly high. And, and so, yeah, that's called being comorbid when those two exist together. And there are some that exist so frequently that they're the majority of the time they will have both of those uh, diagnoses will occur. And so I kind of have this, I've had this thought and I actually heard this from other um, doctorate level psychologists as I've been going through my training, but they sort of pointed out that, that fact that if there are two diagnoses that happen so frequently that you can predict that if there's one, then there's going to be the, there's going to be the other, then maybe it should be the case that the classification system actually refers both of those things as being part of the same diagnosis. It's like, if you always have this one with this one, then you may as well just say that they're part of the same thing. And there will be instances in which they're not like, it'll be instances in which you don't see symptoms from this one over here or this one over here. But most of the time it is both of the, you'll see all of these symptoms together. And so it's, it may not actually be that they're two different things, but that most people have this one thing. And some of those people who have that one thing, will just not display some of the symptoms that we used to think was its own thing over here in column B. So I have in practice seen a lot of, I see autism spectrum disorder and ADHD diagnosed together. Sure. I don't know if you see that a lot, but I, yeah. I tend to see those quite a bit. Um, and so that's one of those things where it's like, they may, they may be co-occurring, but what are the circumstances in which they're not? And that's probably where we've got to rule that piece out. Yeah, for sure. So that's just a, a thing that often happens is that we'll have those comorbid diagnoses that they just tend to exist together. Well, and then I think that that, that leads to, you know, as a practitioner that who's maybe treating those diagnoses, you probably have an issue of like, which do you treat first? Do you treat diagnosis A or diagnosis B? How do you treat them at the same time? Like which treatment is going to be more effective for what? How are they going to co-interact or co-mingle or how, you know, what's, what's, what are there going to be intervention interference? Like what's, what's going to happen there at that point in time? And that, and that gets really messy. Yeah. I'm trying to think if I could, I'm trying to think of a better example. Cause I was just using the words like thing and this and that to try and describe what I meant by that. And I don't, I don't think I did a very good job. So let, let me use, I don't know the actual comorbidity rates of autism and ADHD, but let's just say that we're looking at that. And let's just pretend that for, for example, 75% of individuals who have an autism diagnosis will also have an ADHD diagnosis. Well, I guess the point that I'm making is if it's 75%, does it instead make more sense to just say that autism includes these characteristics that look like hyperactivity and, and, and um, easily distracted and difficulty focusing on a task and like that sort of thing. These characteristic features that are part of ADHD. And by the way, sometimes they will not have those characteristic features. And by the way, there are people who have only those features, but none of the other ones of autism because they just, those are smaller groups. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That, okay. that makes perfect sense. Okay, that's 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 sort of where I'm coming from on why I think that when you have really high rates of comorbidity, it, it seems to make practical sense to just combine those two things because they're probably part of the same underlying set of conditions for that individual. And I, I'm not a person who goes around writing the DSM. I don't know. That is a criticism that I am actually just trying to relay from what I've heard said to me by other PhDs um, and doctors in the field 
um, that that I've, I've experienced going through my training and from a variety of backgrounds too. Like this isn't just people from the behavioral background or from the cognitive behavioral background or from the even the psychodynamic background, but I've kind of heard it from a lot of different angles of them saying that. So we, we kind of see that the the issue with diagnosis, we kind of gather this information, we narrow it down, we form this diagnostic impression, but where do we get our diagnostic fixins? <laughs> where does this stuff come from? So if we're going to travel around the world, the two most widely used systems for diagnosing mental health disorders are the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or the DSM, which is currently in its fifth edition, or the International Classification of Diseases, or the ICD, which is the, as it implies, the international one. And uh, the this ICD is way in the lead for more widespread adoption. Most people who receive a diagnosis will, I guess the majority of them, it will come from the ICD relative to the other cl uh, classification systems that exist because so many countries use this because it's international. It's like the metric system for diagnose diagnoses. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. And the DSM is our standard measure that we use in the United States. Yeah, that's the imperial system. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! So... They've Yay got, for parallels. They've got meters and centimeters and um, liters and milliliters and that sort of thing. And, and grams got, and all that. And grams. Yeah, we've, we've got inches and pounds and uh, barley corns. <laughs> yeah, we, we haven't even gotten into stones yet. <laughs> That's a whole different measure. So so in the United States, we tend to use uh, the DSM-5. That seems to be the standard right now. Um, yeah. And so this was originally adapted from the ICD-6 and published in 1952. So, And it's currently in its fifth iteration. So there have been multiple iterations of this particular manual that's used to help diagnose psychiatric disorders. And at least a few of those... Uh, iterations had a text revision, which some of those text revisions were so substantial, they were almost an entirely revised edition in, unto itself. So yeah, you're right. So, and what's important about this and, and something that um, I don't think that people realize is just because it's a fifth edition doesn't mean that the, the diagnoses have carried over. Um, the current iteration has 297 diagnoses, but in some of the original publications, they had things like homosexuality was considered a psychiatric disorder. Yep. Any diagnosis related to gender identity and transgender issues have changed quite a bit. Um, and as a matter of fact, and then it's, it's getting ready to get pulled. They change it to gender dysphoria. It used to be transgender dysphoria disorder and all kinds of stuff. So you even see the diagnoses evolve over time. And even autism used to be two separate diagnoses. You had Asperger's and then you had autism. And now that's, it's under one larger umbrella. And that all changed over the course, I believe, of the last three revisions went from having um, an Asperger diagnosis to having, oh, I don't remember what the next step was. There were three different steps, but then in this last iteration, something happened in the text revision of the DSM-4, and then in the DSM-5, it just all got collapsed under the autism spectrum disorders. Yeah. So it's important. It's really cool to go back and look at like the first couple DSMs and kind of look at what they considered diagnoses back then and yeah. then look at what is in there now and just understanding that like in the next couple decades, in the next revision, some of that stuff will change again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Part of this comes with learning more information about particular diagnoses. Some of these comes come from what becomes a pragmatic utility a pragmatic approach to how they are uh, dissected into separate or combined into more related things. As I, as I mentioned, there are some that have so much overlap or so much, so much co comorbidity that they end up do changing those diagnoses to be inclusive. So, uh, you know, the, the, that as a criticism, I guess is not really 
like that is a thing that happens, I guess is just really the point is that they, yeah. they, they do take those things into consideration. Well, and as science gets better, we're going to have more clear de- definitions and descriptions of what's going on. And that's kind of, I think this is what this would be a testament to that. It's like our, as our science gets better and we understand the world and the universe a little bit better, we're going to get better information. And that's where the DSM-5 is coming in. It's better than DSM-4 and so on and so forth. That that would be the goal. <laughs> we certainly don't want it getting worse. <laughs> Yeah. So, or at least, or, or staying stagnant, probably for that matter. But now I put that one first on our list just because we, most of our listeners are in the United States. That's the most common one used in the United States. And so wanted to make sure that that was uh, the right at the top of that list for familiarity. But the next one is probably one of the most important ones to talk about. And that's the International Classification of Diseases, or the ICD, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, so it, its official full name is the International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems. And as you may notice in the title, it says diseases and it doesn't actually mention anything about mental health or psychology or psychiatry whatsoever. So the history of this is kind of interesting. Talks began in eight, the 1860s, so 150 years ago, about trying to develop a more or less universal classification system for listing causes of death. That was the original one, okay? And the original version of what would become the ICD, it had a different title at the time, was presented for the first time just 33 years later in 1893. This is pretty old, right? Yeah, yeah. This was developed by the World Health Organization, and it still is carried under that umbrella, and they have made it a point to distribute this all over the place for free or at very low cost, so people who are running diagnoses can get this for nothing or next to nothing to get a copy of it. And the idea was that this would be something that was just a universal thing that's available to all people to be able to understand and identify the needs of the people in their countries, right? And to reach right. as many people as possible. This has been ratified by, I found different numbers on this, but I saw anywhere from 100 to 193 countries. The 193, I believe, is more uh, recent and the 100 was a little bit older. So I think 193 is more accurate, but it's somewhere in that range. And uh, these countries primarily use the ICD as their diagnostic system. Which is great. The fact that we've got like something that's kind of standardized is probably pretty good, right? You can kind of like alt- almost classify the human experience in this realm. Almost. Almost. Yeah, for sure. So um, what, what we kind of found was that the, the there's... There's a lot of common diagnoses with the ICD-10, um, and the five most common diagnoses kind of break down like this. So first, you've got generalized anxiety disorder. Sometimes it's abbreviated as GAD. You'll see it referenced as GAD, um, So, which right. is pretty interesting to kind of see. Um, I think that that's, a, that's probably one of the lower-grade types of anxiety disorders that you might have. Some people have a more experienced, like a more intense experience with it, but some somebody, you know, sure. just as a general rule who has like some general anxiety would be diagnosed with this. Right. Uh, the next one is uh, a adjustment disorder with mixed anxiety and depressed mood. And I was actually surprised to see that this one was so high on the list of all the disorders that uh, it would make it up to the number two slot of the most common diagnosis, especially because this one has more sort of variables thrown in here because there is, um, and I'll just go ahead and jump right, right to it. The next one is just adjustment disorder with anxiety, which is less common than a, uh, adjustment disorder with anxiety and depressed mood. Yeah. I thought that was just, yeah, no, for sure. And there. what makes this even, I guess it makes sense that it might be up there, but it's interesting that both of these are up there. Adjustment disorder is, um, typically a temporary disorder. It's not something that's meant to last 
for a lifetime. Um, it, usually it's something that right. like when somebody goes through some really intense life experiences, they experience this adjustment disorder and then some of the other symptoms with it, like mixed anxiety and depression and all that stuff. I wonder if this is in any way related to how many how many refugees there are right now who are fleeing from various countries to other countries because of the chaotic nature of the world at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's possible. I, I would imagine there's probably been a boom in, in adjustment disorder specifically. And we're going to talk about why that's important later and like kind of how that impacts like receiving services and stuff. But um, just understanding that like this particular disorder, the fact that it's so high up is is we should probably be investigating that a little bit. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. So the fourth one then is, and this is one I, I was ex- expecting to actually be closer to the top of being like number two or number three, but number four here is major depressive disorder and there is recurrent and moderate. And again, this is in the the international um, classification of diseases, the ICD. Yeah. And then um, number five is going to be adjustment disorder unspecified. So you see the top th- three of the top five are all adjustment disorder related types of diagnoses. Yeah. It's just really yeah. interesting. I don't know. Now, now, as we mentioned, there were 297 current diagnoses in the DSM. However, in the um, ICD, there are hundreds of mental health disorders. I tried to go through the list. I couldn't find anywhere where they just said how many there actually were because these are written as codes. And so you'd have to look how many codes there were. And that started to get tricky in terms of whether it was considered a biological disease or a mental disease. And anyway, with respect to what they listed as being like psychiatric diseases, I did some rough sort of back of the envelope calculations when I was looking at how many there were per page and came up with over 600. It's in that ballpark. It could be a little less than that, a little more than that, but it's it's almost three times the number That's that pretty we intense. had on ours. Um, at least, yeah, at least according to the list that I found. And then there were over 60,000 total codes in this thing because remember, this actually began as a diagnostic system for causes of death. And so it lists all medical diseases. I think that's the point of it is to list as many known medical diseases as possible. And I saw numbers as high as 68,000. I actually forgot to mention this earlier, but this is going into its 11th edition right now. As a matter of fact, the 11th edition may have just come out or is just about to come out. I'm not entirely clear on that. But um, they said that they're adding another, I want to say 30,000 diagnoses for some something very specific. I don't remember what it was, but it, it had to do with like a new set of subcategories that they're adding. So I can't even, uh, this has got to be volumes and volumes worth of text. Like I can't even begin to imagine a, a if they had a, a half a page, you know, dedicated to this, you're looking at a 30,000 page book on yeah. codes alone. And I, you know? could you imagine being that person that's like having to organize all that? No. Even a doctor submitting like, "Hey, I've got this new diagnosis. Here, can you put this in the ICD?" Like, I just <laughs> there's just there's so much that goes into it. I think that's part of it. It's like there's so much that goes into it that um it's really pretty incredible that we have kind of a running tab on on everything that kills people. Yeah. Which is smart, I think, to have that that system in place and to have it try and have it be as universal as possible to like the human yeah. condition, you know what I mean? And so I'm just thinking about there's probably I'd be willing to put money on the fact that I don't think one person has ever read that entire thing. I don't think so. I think it's always even people who edit it, who are in charge of like reviewing it for mistakes. I think that they are they break them into teams and they assign teams to sections of it. And I am I'm willing to I would be willing to bet money that not one person has ever read that. (laughs) So we're issuing a challenge to our listeners. (laughs) 
<laughs> Prove me wrong. Yeah. Prove me wrong. Yeah, that's bring, it. Give, bring it. We want to. We want a book report on the ICD-10, and whenever you, <laughs> whenever you get a chance, if you can give me evidence that someone has actually done this, I will send you a, a sticker in the mail. Several stickers in the mail. You're, that's that's perfectly fair. And if if we ever meet in person, I'll I'll buy you a a drink or something. Okay, so as I mentioned, although those are the two most common, the DSM and the ICD, and man, psychology loves their initialisms and and acronyms and whatnot, acronyms, acronyms and whatnot, uh, I did find that there were, and I I knew that there were, but I I found some interesting other cultures that existed that have their own diagnostic systems, and some of them I didn't know about, and some of them I did, and then there's also one that's purely theoretical, which I also thought was interesting, and the first one, yeah, I know, right, and the first one uh, that I have here is the Chinese classification of mental disorders or the CCMD, which is currently in its third edition. This first came out in 1979 and the people in China who developed this believed or at least intended it to have the advantage of it stripping away some of what seemed to them to be the sort of Western culture specific diagnoses. And even though the diagnoses are, there's some debate about whether or not mental health disorders are universal or they are cultural specific or they're both or they're some for some and universal for others and whatnot. At least the people who are developing this in this culture felt that there were certain diagnoses that just didn't feel particularly relevant to their culture. And in addition to that, felt that the diagnostic system did not capture some of the disorders that would be relevant to that culture. And so they developed their own called this uh, Chinese classification of of mental disorders, which is um, widely used in China. Yeah, and so um, there's some evidence of like culture-specific diagnoses out there. So it's really interesting to kind of see this uh, entire group of people put together a manual and really classify things uh, specific to their culture and kind of, like you said, like strip away that Western uh, medicine feel to it. So I'm sure there's some utility to it. I just don't know enough about it to speak to it. Um, But I do know that like even talking about like my own practice and looking at things like our ethics code and and some of the tools and some of the discussions around that stuff, we do have a very um, Westernized medical practice that is pretty starkly different than some other practices. So it's worth looking at the mental health side of it for, from the same with the same lens, I guess you could say. That's a great point. And there are even those who have separated out from inside of the Western sort of, I guess, culture and developed other, the other diagnostic systems that would be maybe considered Western, but wouldn't necessarily fit with something like a European or American classification system. And so uh, one of those I found was the uh, Latin American Guide of Psychiatric Diagnoses. And I had a hard time finding a lot of information about this. The earliest date that I found seemed to suggest that it came out in 2002. I also found one that suggested that it was published in 2004 for the first time. So somewhere around the beginning of the 2000s. And it's possible that it was before that. I just couldn't find any hard dates. And I couldn't find a lot of other information about this particular diagnostic system. But it is one that exists for Latin America. There's another one that was the Cuban Glossary of Psychiatry. This one preceded the Latin American Guide of Psychiatric Diagnoses, as I understand it. This one was published in 1975. I believe this is in its third edition right now. And is again, it's intended to develop a classification system for mental health diagnoses, especially those that are relevant to that culture. Yeah, I'm interested to see kind of how the Cuban glossary of psychiatry, now that there are some open discussions across like, you know, the United States and Cuba, like I'm wondering how that that glossary is going to shift and change now that there's like more of an open dialogue than there was back then. 
Yeah, absolutely. So that would be really interesting. Actually, that would really be cool to see kind of like the that Western influence and how that might apply to, um, you know, mental health disorders in a, in different cultures like that. Yeah. And I mean, you, you said that exactly that we may as well tease now that after we did the research for this episode, we sort of talked about how I think we're in a plan for an episode down the road where we're going to go into the cultural specific diagnoses and see and, and it'll be relevant, I think, to discuss how there is some, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? There's shared sort of information or shared approaches across some of these cultures as well to making some of these diagnoses. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And so another tool that's being used to help diagnose or provide these like this criteria would be the research domain uh, criterion, which is the RDOC or the RDOC, I guess. I don't know how they how they would say that, but it's being developed by NIH, which is um, a pretty significant database for research and science. Um, and this one's more based in biology. Yeah, and so NIH, for those non-Americans, is the National Institute of Health here in the United States. And they were trying to look at, it doesn't directly say that this is specifically competing with the DSM, but I, I sort of got the impression that, that it was hoping to replace at least some of the diagnoses in the DSM by um, making it all about biological markers and sort of concrete, relevant features of those diagnoses. And I believe that it was pronounced RDOC. I think you were correct on that. Okay, cool. So another one that was interesting, as I mentioned, there is this theoretical diagnostic approach, and this is called the Psychodynamic Diagnostic Manual, or the PDM. This was published in 2008, or at least that was the earliest reference I could find to it. And again, this one was not intended to compete with the DSM, but as they described it um, in the intention of this book, they were hoping that this, the, the they being the essentially the psychoanalytic association and some other psychoanalytic groups were hoping that this would offer a psychoanalytic framework to augment the other classification systems by adding a Freudian psychodynamic theory to the interpretation of those disorders and possibly prescribe uh, a, a talk therapy approach that would use psychodynamic principles to inform treatment for those disorders as well. And so, yeah, this is its own own thing that now exists. I, it's actually really interesting. This was eye-opening to me because I did not think, I, I was under the impression that there has been a steady decline in the number of people practicing and researching psychodynamic theory. And I think maybe I was wrong. It, it's maybe it has remains relatively consistent for a while and it it made me think of if that is a parallel to that and the behaviorism movement which got much got very popular in the middle of the 20th century in like the 1940s through 1970s thereabouts and then although it was less known in the mainstream it's uh, after that so it's it's notification and like how well people know about it seems to have dropped off a little bit since then people don't talk about like the behaviorism movement anymore but the applied version of behaviorism has become enormously popular and grown substantially since the 1950s so I, i'm not sure there's just an interesting overlap there that i'm wondering if it's like the theory of psychodynamics and how it sort of seemed to have its heyday also around the middle of the 20th century has sort of dropped off that um the the practice of it actually has continued to grow or at least remain steady. I'm, I'm really curious to find out more about that now. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, in my psychology program, it seemed like psychodynamics was around enough that some of the professors who were fairly newer professors were still practicing within that realm. So I believe it's alive and well. I mean, I had a I had a school psychologist hand me a uh, um, the Exner books for the Rorschach test. So okay. I've got like a stack of like the textbooks and the slides and stuff, the tiles for it. Um, so it's still pretty omnipresent, but I don't I just don't know to what degree it's being used. Yeah, for sure. Cool. There were another couple of subsystems that I found for diagnostic systems that there was a subsystem for uh, children used in conjunction with the ICD or the DSM. And uh, this was the Diagnostic Classification of Mental Health and Developmental Disorders of Infancy and Early Childhood, as well as the French Classification of Child and Adolescent Mental Health Disorders. So as you can see, there's a lot of stuff out there, right? right. Which makes it so that you know, you've got your ICD and you've got your DSM, which are widely used and pretty commonly used. Um, but, you know, you have this issue of that you've got all these other tools out there that help classify diagnoses and mental health disorders. And you run the risk of how standardized is it? Sure. I think there's an important element to discuss that I don't want to go too much in depth on this actually right now, even though I think this is really relevant to understanding the diagnostic system. I think it probably warrants a more in-depth discussion on its own, and this is how one goes about just generally doing these classifications. And so the DSM-5 has axes. I believe that other versions of this had axes as well, but essentially there's five of them. Clinical disorders, personality disorders, general medical conditions, psychosocial and environmental problems, and the last one, global assessment of functioning. And those are sort of categories of those disorders, if you will. Yeah, and what's cool about this is you see how it's broken up, but the general medical conditions, um, the DSM, I think we've been talking about mental health disorders and stuff like that, but the general medical conditions applies to things that have like an organic etiology, right? Like things like seizure right. disorders and traumatic brain injury and stuff like that. So when we're talking about mental health disorders, we're not talking about those quote unquote unseen diagnoses too. We're talking about those things that have like a real medical like like foundation. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then some other considerations around how the classification system works. And again, I, this is such a fascinating discussion, but I think it's warranted to spend time down the road on this and go much more in depth is uh, this idea of there being sort of a dichotomous versus a spectrum um, with respect to some kind of disorder. So uh, dichotomous referring to the whether it's it is or it isn't. There is a clear boundary of whether this does meet the sort of threshold of criteria or it doesn't. And then a spectrum being more of like a, it could fall anywhere in a range of how it shows up from very, very low to very, very intense. So those are, those are two different sort of theoretical frameworks for approaching this idea of how to even describe a diagnosis as it exists. And then another one is this descriptive versus somatic. And descriptive is generally going to be thought of as more subjective. It's going to be a lot of reports. There are some direct observation of different behaviors and that sort of thing. Um, but there's often going to be relying on on people providing that information or filling out questionnaires, those kind of assessments. And then the somatic diagnosis would instead be looking at the chemical and biological markers that are associated with it. That sort of goes to the medical conditions, as you had mentioned. But those are just two different ways. And obviously, the somatic is going to be the approach that was taken in our doc we were talking about earlier, how they were looking at just the, just the chemical, just the biological makeup of a diagnosis. So, 
as you can see, there are a lot of different ways to classify this, but I think what's important is like, we're, we're spending all this time talking about it, but why, why is this important? Like, why does this actually matter? Like, why do we need to classify diagnoses and why do we need to describe them? And why do we need to have some kind of resource or tool so that other people can also provide a diagnosis for people that are suffering from this type of thing? Okay, so one of the ways in which you can often find why something has happened in so many elements of life, generally speaking, is to follow the money. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons that a diagnosis matters is because if there is a diagnosis, then that can provide funding for um, professional support for that diagnosis, such as therapy or maybe even a medical intervention or other things. And what that primarily means is that people who have some kind of health insurance, oftentimes health insurance either will or is required to, or both, um, provide reimbursement or just general um, payments to therapists who provide treatment for mental health disorders. But they will only do so if the medical professional bills with a specific diagnostic code for that disorder. So they'll say, like, this is the code we're using. This is the code for, just to pull an example from a common one, autism, um, I believe is... 299, is that still the code? Um, I think uh, it's F84. Okay. There's a couple different codes. Like okay. there's a DSM code, there's an ICD code. So it could be either one of those. I want to say it's 299 for the DSM and it's F84 for the ICD. Okay. So the, yeah, then you there are those DSM codes that and the ICD codes that those are reported to the insurance of the thing that's being billed for treatment and that the treatment also can have a code and that uh, the insurance will look at that and decide whether or not they're going to reimburse for it. But that's part of the reason the diagnostic system exists is to secure funding for therapy or treatment of some kind. Yeah, I mean, and that's, and that's one reason, that's not ultimately the main reason, so I think it's important to kind of recognize that. When we start talking about this, uh, a big part of receiving a diagnosis also allows access to certain rights and services and protections under legal guidelines. So um, in the United States specifically, if you have somebody that's diagnosed with a developmental disability like autism or intellectual delays or anything like that, um, they fall under a specific set of rights. They are identified as a vulnerable population that can receive a specific set of services that aren't accessible to people who um, do not have those same diagnoses and specific funding as well but also that they have uh, the right to certain protections from being victimized and have and uh, the right to like advocates and stuff to to work on their behalf mm -hmm. to try and ensure that they are getting treated fairly because we those people could very easily be taken advantage of if mm -hmm. if there were not people who were looking out for them if there weren't laws that were protecting them yeah. I mean, when I started working in the field, I was working as a case manager before I started working in, in what I do now. And, um, and that's exactly what that was all about was having somebody there as a, that was, that was federally funded to be able to provide oversight and support for that person to make sure they had everything that they need, that all their needs were met legally from that living perspective, from the community. Like we, that was, our, that was our goal. So another one, and this isn't really a big one, but this is a thing that is can be useful to have is that this can function as sort of a census for the experiences in a given culture or a, a nation such as under some type of sovereign government where they're going to look at and say what proportion of our citizens are experiencing this kind of um who are in need of services for this type of health. And sometimes that will lead even to programs where either the government will, will, will require insurance to reimburse for or provide access to services for those things or will um, otherwise subsidize treatment um, for those things or will try and look at, okay, if we have a high 
amount of this in this population relative to other populations? Is there maybe something that we need to change about our policies or that there's something that we need to be prepared for in terms of an influx of patients or what can uh, go along with some of these disorders like things like substance abuse? Um, and then that it can be very useful to have that information to know how to support citizens of a country when you have a government who's in, who's interested in supporting the citizens of their country, which of course is not going to be every government. And another thing too, is that it helps kind of streamline communication across professionals. So if I'm working with somebody and I say, this person has autism spectrum disorder, this person has bipolar disorder, this person has um, generalized anxiety disorder, then you can get a pretty good picture of what's happening with that person. Um, you might not have the entire picture because it, I always kind of say like, if you work with one person with autism, you've worked with one person with autism. Um, that's kind of, <laughs> I love that. That's really, you know, like the old, I, I've also heard that the only, the only thing that's common about autism is the way it's spelled. Um, <laughs> that's, I've, I've heard that a couple of times, but so that's important, but also you kind of get a sense of what you're, what to expect when you work with that patient. So if I'm working with somebody with OCD and, ha and they're seeking a specific type of treatment, then I can go back and say, they're likely experiencing some level of this, 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 and this can, I can communicate that with another professional and they can kind of pick up where I left off. Yeah, it basically gives us a sort of shared secret code language that we can communicate with one another um, mm -hmm. rapidly. Um, and it's not as glamorous really as a code, although it might sound like we're speaking in code to people who hear professional psychologists talking to one <laughs> another. Um, but it is it does give access to a shared language by which information can be quickly disseminated from one individual to another by using common terms and common descriptions. Yeah. And, you know, something, too, that I've seen that I've worked with families is that uh, when they can get a diagnosis, it can give them a sense of hope or relief. Like they know that there's something going on. Right. So if I have a, a family who is receiving or is needing services or they're they're experiencing some challenges with their child and they don't really know what to do and they go get the testing and they finally find out like, hey, this child has this diagnosis or this is what's going on, then it gives them kind of like, a, oh, there's a reason and now I have a path to go forward and look for the resources to support this person. Right. And there can be so much fear too around if you don't, if you just don't know what it is and you tend to go to like the worst possible outcome of what it could be and like, Oh no, what am I going to do? How am I, how am I going to live with this? How's my child going to live with this? Am, am I doomed forever? And it's like, it, as soon as you have a name for it and a little bit of information about the diagnosis, it starts it, for some people, and obviously it can be worse for others, but, um, it can have the effect for some people that they are able to feel, okay, now I feel like I have a handle on this. I'm like, okay, I know that there is a treatment for this. I feel a lot better about it and that, that sort of thing. So that can be, um, an important element of getting a diagnosis. And then one of, in my opinion, one of the most critical parts of any assessment, like it's all well and good to be able to accomplish all those things that we mentioned, to be able to give access to rights and protections, to be able to secure funding, to be able to um, communicate all of that thing. But one of, just thinking about each individual person who is suffering in some way, the most important thing, the, the greatest utility you can get out of a diagnosis is informing treatment for the individual, informing what kind of support that they need, what kind of assistance or um, intervention or therapy that they need for their life. And I found this quote on one of the websites as I was, I was doing, looking up some of the research on this. They said, a diagnosis is only as good as the treatment it leads to. And I was like, that is that is such a good quote. I love that sentiment tremendously. And so yeah. this is one of the criticisms, criticisms. We're going to get into the criticisms of at least the DSM as well as diagnostic systems in general. But one of the criticisms I've always brought to this is that if I cannot get 
any kind of information about what kind of therapeutic intervention is useful for this individual, then I don't really care what the diagnosis is as a clinician. Now, again, I get that there's lots of reasons to get one, but if I, in terms of how I want to advocate for and provide services for an individual, the diagnosis doesn't mean anything if it doesn't tell me what I can do to help that person. And so, uh, and there are diagnoses out there that are that are purely descriptive and they offer no information whatsoever. And honestly, unfortunately, autism can fall in that category sometimes, where, as you just said, if you've worked with one person with autism, you've worked with one person with autism because knowing that they have autism does not necessarily inform me what kind of uh, interventions they're going to work with that particular individual or what kind of things to even expect from them uh, when we go to, to begin therapy. Exactly. And, and that's and that's the thing is like a diagnosis is a description in it gives me a, a thread to pull as far as which treatment is going to be the most effective to help that person. At least it should be. <laughs> it should be at least. Yeah. So. All right. So another human part of this, I think that's important is that is understanding what it might feel like when you are in the process of receiving a diagnosis. And there's a lot, obviously we're not going to cover the entire spectrum because every individual is different, but some common things that people tend to report experiencing when they uh, receive a diagnosis for the first time is that uh, that person, you or, or this other person, hypothetical Bob or Sally, whatever it's going to be, um, may feel that some of the symptoms of their diagnosis do match with their experience and some of them don't match. And that's totally normal to feel like there's not a, a direct, that there can be a little bit of a mismatch in, in that description of the diagnosis versus what you're experiencing. Yeah. And another thing too, is that you may get some information and have the feeling that you're doomed to the diagnosis. Like that's like a death knell for, for the, your, the rest of your life and that there's just really no way out of it. Um, and I think it's really important if you do, if you are somebody who has recently received a diagnosis or that you're in that realm, like just know that it's okay. Like you're there, there are effective treatments for quite a few diagnoses out there, like most of them. And that it's not necessarily that you're stuck in that space. Right. And, and I mean, it really is not. And yeah, that, I think you, you said exactly well, because it's the point is not to be that like, this is just who you are. This diagnosis is your identity. Live with it. It really is meant to be more informative in terms of, OK, this is what we're currently seeing. How do we move forward with this? And honestly, a lot of mental health diagnoses are very temporary. Now, for some people, they live with them their whole life, but many people will experience something um, in the course of a year or, or a couple of years. And then um, especially with treatment, they'll get better and they'll move on to go back to living a, a, you know, the, the life that they want to live. I just wanted to reiterate that point that there, yeah. there can feel the sense of sort of doom and gloom, but it does not have to become your identity. Um, there is, there's often effective treatments for these. Um, another common experience is just feeling that the diagnosis is incorrect altogether. And especially thinking, well, what if it's this other thing that seems like it has a lot of the same symptoms? And while that's a perfectly valid concern and you should definitely communicate that with your doctor, it's also important to consider the fact that the person who did the diagnosis likely considered the fact, I wonder if this is these other things. And then they went through a process of ruling out those other things before they even came to you with their suggestion of a diagnosis. That's not to mean that you that you still might disagree with them, and you might and you might be right that they're incorrect. Maybe there was something that they forgot to consider or something, and so it's important to have that conversation. But also just keep keep in mind that they probably thought about that a little bit at least in going through the diagnostic process. Yeah, I think the big thing there is just communicating, right? If you're concerned, like Absolutely. definitely communicate. You use your words because you, that, at the end of the day, like you know, n there's not a there's not a perfect diagnostician. That works. Is that what the word diagnostician? Uh, yeah. But 
yeah, a diagnosticer. Um, <laughs> there's not a perfect one out there, but it's important to just kind of like recognize that that you know they may have made a mistake. They have considered it. Maybe they maybe they didn't have all the information too. So um, another thing that you might experience is that you might feel fear or anger or having or have difficulty accepting it. Some people get into this real denial phase. I mean, you know, I've I've worked with families that that receive a diagnosis for their child and they go through grief stage because they're grieving sure. all the things that could have been that they that they feel like they may never have. And so you may experience some of that. And so it's it's important to just recognize that that is something that may bubble up when you do first hear those words of like, you have this diagnosis. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a legit thing to feel like some opportunity or potential has been snatched away from you permanently, that that, that can feel really hard for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, as we mentioned, there can certainly have, be the sense of uh, relief and hope after he- hearing that whatever you're experiencing has a name. So that one um, is something that many people report feeling uh, a little bit of re- a relief from having that diagnosis. And there is a a small proportion, which I'm going to get into a, a moment, of people who actually feel a bit of uh, glee and a rush at having something to cling on to as a source of their identity, which is then having that diagnosis. I really don't want to indicate that this is most people at all. This is going to be an extremely small fraction of people, but there will be a small amount of people who, upon hearing a diagnosis, think, yes, this is who I get to be and, and like have a clear sort of identity to cling to now. And again, pretty in, infrequent. And I'm going to get into that just a little bit uh, more here in just a moment. A couple of, of points here to talk about as we move into criticisms. Yeah. So I mentioned before that, there, that, that nobody's a perfect diagnostician. Diagnosticer. (laughs) Diagnosticer. Like, nobody does this perfectly. Like, there are are times that mess up, that people mess up, and part of it is due to training, part of it is due to uh, whatever manual and stuff, but we're going to kind of dig into that a little bit. So the first issue that comes up sometimes is that you might get a wrong diagnosis. And ultimately what happens is, if you get a wrong diagnosis, and this is why it's so important to talk to your doctor and make sure you feel comfortable with what's going on, um, it can lead to a lack of treatment, uh, effective treatment, the treatment does nothing, the treatment actually makes it worse. You run the risk of also wasting resources and wasting time. You know, for the year that you spend in a treatment that's not effective, that's a year that you could have been in an effective treatment with the right diagnosis. And now you spend all this money and all this time and you can't get it back. Oh, and there are so many of those fad therapies we've talked about that do exactly that of, of waste time on something. And that's not necessarily from an incorrect diagnosis. Those are just people who market to a, a vulnerable population um, mm-hmm. with, with a sham therapy like rapid prompting or facilitated communication, or it has another name now too, but just going back to something else you had said that they might have a, a poor assessment tool. They also might have gotten incorrect information either from the patient or from the pe- the person, uh, the people who they interviewed around the patient, like family members and whatnot. And so if they got incorrect information, at the begin with, like either those people were directly misleading or they didn't understand what they're being asked or they themselves were, str- were suffering some kind of um, disorder and weren't a reliable source, um, that may have led to an incorrect diagnosis as well as just one other source. So another one, as I've been alluding to several times now, is that you may see some quote-unquote buy-in to their diagnosis. And uh, what then happens is that the people will sort of exaggerate or live into their symptoms in such a way that they... Um, they sort of embody what they feel like are supposed to represent that diagnosis. And so 
I sort of went down the rabbit hole in this as I was making some notes about this, but this is called a uh, factitious disorder. I saw some reference to that. This might be a new name for Munchausen, but I, ha- I didn't follow that very closely, but I think it, it will definitely warrant its own discussion down the road of, of what that is. But that's just, as I mentioned, uh, a criticism of this is that that sort of thing can occur with a diagnosis. There is a consideration I often like to bring up inside of discussions like this one where we're talking about things, especially like ethics, okay? And there is an ethical question about when and if um, it's important to have a diagnosis and what that's used for. And what's implied by this is the conditions under which it is acceptable to intervene and change somebody, either change their behavior or change their, their cognition, which is their behavior or something, you know, at what point do you step in and intervene um, with someone? Cause there are people who have the right to request no intervention um, when it comes to medical diagnoses for certain things. Right. But for, uh, for mental health, there sometimes they can't advocate for themselves. But and and actually, that's one of the main points here is that we would want to provide that diagnosis and specifically intervene when, first of all, we have consent from the individual or at least from their advocate. If the individual can't advocate for themselves, for doing that intervention and diagnostic system, and then the other consideration is that when doing this intervention it would almost certainly lead to a less restrictive environment and improve the quality of life for that individual. And it should be that you only move forward with that if it's pretty well guaranteed that that's going to be the outcome, or at least you can make a very solid case for why you believe it's going to be the outcome. And there are a lot of people who want to try and change behavior or change people's psychology because it's inconvenient for them. And it's, and that's why this is an ethical consideration is like, that's not an appropriate time to do that. It really only has to do when it would result in that person having access to a less restrictive environment or a more inclusive environment and, um, and also um, having a higher quality of life after having received that intervention. Yeah. That's such a tough, uh, that's such a tough question to answer, right? Like when is it appropriate to intervene? Like how, how do we intervene? When do we intervene? When is it appropriate for us to like step in and change somebody's life? So another big issue that comes up with diagnoses is that uh, a a specific diagnosis can lead to discrimination and victimization. And and you might have a situation where somebody with a particular diagnosis may be more likely to be a victim of a crime. So uh, we talked before about the DSM having some some diagnostic criteria related to homosexuality and stuff. And and that population of people, that group, the LBGT community, is still experiencing a lot of that. Um, but a one in particular that comes up is gender dysphoria. The trans community is 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 highly victimized. And it, it, it we can't really say whether it's an, a result of di- the diagnosis itself, but that diagnosis does lend itself to kind of open somebody up to a higher level of discrimination, especially when it comes to work environments, uh, when it comes to um, any sort of situation where, you know, they're being asked what their gender is and maybe people, the general public doesn't really identify or match or they may misgender this group of people. And of course, I'm probably not being as sensitive as I could to this particular situation. I do my best, but at the end of the day, like those typical, those types of diagnoses can result in a lot of problems for somebody, even though they are necessary to help that person. Yeah. And also, I mean, many, many of the mental health disorders, I I know schizophrenia is one of them. And there are some others where people are often afraid of people with schizophrenia. But statistically speaking, they're far less likely to commit a crime than they are to be the victim of of some kind of crime. Often, as I said, people think that they can be taken, that they can easily take advantage of those people and sort of trick them into doing things or giving them money and whatnot. So just absolutely. Yeah. And, And so I always try and bring awareness to that, that 
there's there's really nothing generally to fear about um, about these people. And obviously, there are people who have a mental health disorder and also have engaged in criminal activity. Um, but more often than not, they are they are human beings who deserve to be treated like human beings, and there's nothing to be afraid of. And they need help. They need a different level of support than what is quote unquote standard of, of somebody who doesn't have one of these diagnoses. Exactly. All right. Now there's also concern as a criticism about these diagnostic systems about reification and construct validity and reification refers to the extent to which you come up with a term and then you treat that term as if it's literally real and that it's a tangible measurable, dimensionable thing that exists. And so this construct validity is the extent to which a test can and does actually measure what it's intended to measure. And you think about something, we mentioned this in our intelligence episodes, but if you think about something like some of these diagnoses that seem so ephemeral and so unrelated to, they seem to like re refer to this weird thing out in the ether that's causing this problem to, to happen, that when they feel like these nebulous ideas that aren't really things. They're not biological causes. They're not physical manifestations of those causes. It's sort of a vague gray category of things that people might ex might report as being uh, a frustrating or suffering experience for them. Um, there's that whole idea of, is that, a, is that a thing? And if we treat it as if it's a thing, does it then become a thing when it wasn't a thing before? And I've certainly heard this be the case for certain phobias, although I don't, I don't know for sure that's the case. And I, I've started looking up a few of them because I'd be interested to do an episode on one if we can point to a few phobias that were reified in basically going from not existing to existing because someone brought them into existence by just like saying, Hey, this is a thing that you're afraid of. And then people going, that's me. You know, <laughs> I can do, I do that. Yeah. I, I can be afraid of a thing. Um, <clears throat> and, and I don't, I don't know. It's possible. There are actually zero examples of that, but I, I think that there are at least a couple and I'm, I'm interested to try and dig them out of the, out of the weeds of the internet. So. Yeah, for sure. And then uh, we also run in this issue of diagnostic fads. So you have some uh, almost like boutique diagnoses that people will uh, come into contact with. Uh, I know that there this was happening pretty recently where, oh my God, what was it? Uh, affluent? Like it was a, like the affluent disorder or like um, like it was something to do with like because kids are rich, they have a mental disorder. Oh, have you seen this? No, I didn't hear about this. Yeah, so essentially it was like uh, they're absolved of crimes they commit because they were too rich to understand that they committed a crime. That's ridiculous. So, so it's it does happen. It, it, actually, there were there are criminal cases that were relate, related to this. A kid was driving a car and um, and killed somebody in a car accident, and he was too rich to understand that he had he had committed a crime. I so don't know how to <laughs> feel about that. I, it's, it's just, well, it was one of those things where this kid didn't, it was, it was just an issue of learning history. This kid had never been exposed to anything really. Um, but that did not make it a, a diagnosis worthy of absolving him from a crime. So, right. so you have these diagnostic fads that come up and you probably have some examples too, but, um, that's one that I can think of right off the bat that's happened in the last couple of years. Well, and I think, uh, one common case that's pointed to is when the movie Sybil came out. Um, I think it was called Sybil. It was about Sybil Shepherd, and, and was when that movie came out, there was just an explosion 
explosion in the number of schizophrenia diagnoses. And so the criticism specifically is that there are times when it becomes sort of in vogue or becomes popular or a diagnosis just becomes really, really well known for a period of time. And because of the attention it receives, a lot more people start receiving the diagnosis. And of course, there is the one side of this that's like maybe those are un undiagnosed cases that are just now being caught because there's so much, I guess, sensitivity to that diagnosis existing. And the other side of this is, um, well, maybe it's that they're seeing this diagnosis where it doesn't really exist because they have it sort of in the, foref the forefront of their mind and they're just looking for things to confirm that that's the diagnosis that they think is out there. And it could also be a combination of both of those things. And it's super unclear where on the spectrum of things that that falls, but it certainly is the case that fad diagnoses do start to happen that like some event will will come up and all of a sudden that diagnosis will start showing up all over the place and it's unclear if it's like well was this something that was undetected or something that we're making up and then an, yeah. an, thanks sybil <laughs> and then another one uh, that's related to this is just that there's there is relatively little oversight in terms of checking in to see that someone did their due diligence in correctly diagnosing something and i can virtually guarantee that there are at least some doctors out there that can be paid off to write a diagnosis for something that is just so that person can get access to a certain medication, probably more often than anything, um, or that they can get access to certain um, privileges perhaps, or I, I don't know. It's There are going to be some doctors out there who will, who will record a diagnosis for a certain amount of, of payment. Probably very few, probably hard to come by. I, I would be willing to bet the vast majority of doctors have a lot of integrity in their system, but that's not to say that's not out there. And again, there's just there's not a lot of people checking on them because the kind of oversight, the kind of infrastructure it would take to uh, to regulate and implement the oversight is amazingly complicated and expensive, and would require about as many personnel as there are psychologists in the country. Yeah, and and probably more so. Yeah, I mean tens of thousands at least. I mean. I mean it would be so difficult to enforce that um, to really make it work. It really does has to be, I think right now, and I could be totally wrong and maybe down the, down the road, someone's going to develop a much better system. But I think right now it just has to be that people specifically train these ethical considerations when they are teaching new students in this about like, Hey, like if we don't have integrity in the system, it's going to collapse and we're relying on you to carry this forward to the next generation. And so like, this is why you have to do things in a particular way with integrity and with ethics. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's a lot of information about a lot about this whole system, but I think it's also kind of important to frame it in um, in the way of like kind of understanding how prevalent this is, right? So we're talking about diagnosing, we're talking about the process, but here's what it really looks like. So we wanted to pull some stats and kind of share them with you all. Yeah, one fun one that I found was that about 20% or one in five adults in the United States are reported to experience a mental illness in any given year, which is okay. a lot higher than I thought it would be actually. Yeah. Um, and just to kind of piggyback on that, you know, the across the globe in 2017, it was determined that about 13% of the world's population experiences some kind of mental or substance use disorder. So what that equates to is about 970 million people. It's almost a billion people. Almost a billion people across the planet experience some level of mental illness. That's almost as many people as went to go see Avengers Endgame. Almost as many people. <laughs> so close. We've talked about the burden of uh, physical, social, and economic variables as it relates to mental illness, but 
it's important to understand how many mental health workers are actually out there. They only account for 1% of the global health workforce. So if you think about that, that's not very many people. So 1% of the global health workforce is related to mental health and 45% of the world's population lives in a country with less than one psychiatrist per 100,000 people. Man. That is, That's insane. That is, I would hate to have a 100,000 person caseload. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine managing like <laughs> just all the medication for 100,000 people? Yeah. No, thanks. That's too much. Yeah. I'm like, I will see... 10 people a day every day for this year and then won't be able to see you again for five years because I'm, yeah. I'm booked. <laughs> yep, booked solid. Another interesting, if not really sad, statistic that I found was about 26% of adults in a homeless shelter have some kind of mental health uh, diagnosis. Uh, an interesting t- uh, statistic I found that I didn't actually dig into the research on this one, but I found one that claimed that half of all chronic mental illness begins at age 14. Who, wow. Who knew? That's pretty intense. Yeah. Um, 41% of adults with a mental illness will see a mental health professional. So that means that 59% of adults that have one will never go see one. Yeah, exactly. That they will not even receive services. So, and that might be an issue of access to treatment. That might be that they refuse to acknowledge it. It could be any number of those things, but there's still, uh, the majority of people with a mental illness will not actually see a mental health professional to treat it. Yeah. Super multifaceted. Um, about one in 25 people will experience a a serious mental health uh, illness that impedes their regular activity. Wow. And 20, about 21% of children between the ages of one and five experience mental health, which I thought was, that was pretty intense, like that they're that young experiencing that. And it was surprising that then only 13% of children between the ages of eight and 15 will experience mental health. So there seems to be a, um, a sort of drop off there. Yeah. And now, um, kind of going back to economic costs, uh, it actually costs about $193 billion in lost earnings as a result of mental health issues, right? Like people not being able to go to work, people being uh, involuntarily incarcerated um, as a result of some type of mental health health issue. Yeah. I mean, if you can imagine how much I mean, that's obviously just a prediction based off like how many people are in the system and the average amount that they would potentially make if they were out in the workforce earning that amount of money. But I mean, if that's even close to being accurate, that is an enormous amount of money that you would think that even private industry would be interested in funding some support for those people because like how much those people would be earning and spending in the economy that just really bump it up a lot. Yeah, absolutely. So as I was looking through the specific cultural diagnostic systems that exist, it was interesting that when I was reading about the Chinese diagnostic system, um, the CCDM, I believe it was called, the Chinese classification of mental disorders or the CCMD, which again is in the third edition. So they always just add the number at the end. So CCMD3, um, that for whatever reason, they specifically highlighted two of the diagnoses that were specific to um, to that diagnostic system. And one of them was called Koro, which is the belief that, that one's genitals are shrinking into their body and becoming smaller and smaller, um, including mm-hmm. nipples and other genital areas. Um, so I, this is an interesting one to hear. Uh, so, yep, I have not heard that happening in the United States. Yeah. Um, I, I did read that there's a hypothesis that there is some emphasis on fertility in that culture, and so a fear around being infertile is uh, particularly pr- uh, prevalent. Um, but I just thought that one, that one really stood out to me as a, huh, what an interesting little yeah. fact to add to this discussion. 
Yeah, so we're going to add that to our, to our future episode on culture-specific diagnoses because um, I, I really want to get into ghost sickness too. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's really interesting to kind of see kind of how different and like the different experiences, like that there aren't shared experiences, even though we tend to assume there are in, re- in relation to mental health in particular. Okay, so let's go ahead and wrap it up there. Um, we do have a listener mail really quick. I don't know if anybody has actually noticed the fact that I put in a different sound every time preceding the listener mail. Like, I don't know, I don't know if they were thinking that, like, I just couldn't remember what it was or whatever. I don't know. I've, I've, I try <laughs> and think of something new every time just to uh, – there's so many different sounds out there. So I thought it would be funny to just put in random sounds. <laughs> we live in a world full of wonderful sounds. <laughs> exactly. Off topic already. Okay. So this is from Christina <laughs> uh, Islas or Ilas Cruz. I hope I said that correctly. I'm sorry. So – and this was in response to um, – talking about fad treatments, uh, our episode that we did for our 100th episode. And she said, this is so sad. I recently encountered this referring to fad therapies when they use a super ineffective and time-wasting fad treatment for one of my kiddos with so many prom- promises, then to find out that it hasn't been created for children um, just around the spectrum, but for more of a tutoring program. And I feel terrible for families and for the kiddo. I guess the treatment works for a few kiddos, but it's definitely no blanket treatment. Um, now the family has reached out to me privately to see what I can do to reverse what has been done. And, um, mm. so yeah, cool. Thanks for uh, writing in with that story. I mean that, yeah, that is a common experience that those of us in the field who do science-based interventions will run into when we, uh, have families who they got sort of duped or tricked into participating in something that was not evidence-based that was not scientific. And, um, yeah, it's unfortunate that that happens. And I don't know if for some of them, it is possible that there's some amount of this does work for them in a way, but for most of them, they kind of conceivably can't work. They can't work because they're not doing anything. It's sort of like the, I mean, the extent to which it could work is the extent to which a placebo could work. When we went and talked about our homeopathy episode, it's like this, there's no active ingredient at most what you get is a placebo. And a placebo can be an effective thing, but it can't do something like cure autism. You know what I mean? Right. So exactly. Yeah. So this, um, but anyway, that was a really good story. I appreciate you writing in. It's unfortunate that those are, those are things that happen, but I think it's important that people share the story like this so that others can hear about it and not, and not think of this as sort of a low stakes thing of you may as well just throw whatever happens at this problem and see what, what works of you should really go with the things that are evidence-based because otherwise you can, you'll have to undo some of the damage that can be done. Right. And that takes more time. Right. Cool. Well, All right. this has been a very long one, but I had a really fun time. So great job. Uh, and thank you for helping me, Shane. Yeah. Hey, thank you for having me on. This one was really, really interesting, I think, and and really important. Yeah. So Perfect. And thank you all who are out there in podcast land for listening. Uh, I think that's it. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. V.
video and production assistance from Tyler Brasier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. All right, let's do this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very tempted to keep that. (laughs) Save it. We'll use it for something. That's the segue. Let's do this. (laughs) Let's do this. (laughs) Oh, man. That was great. Okay.